Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Moz Afzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. Today, have Paul Temperton on the podcast. So Paul Temperton is a special consultant who works for, for us and consults with the macro team to tackle some of the latest economic and market trends. And uh, indeed, Paul, as you'll hear in a moment, is a very good and long-standing friend. So what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about uh, debt sustainability. We're going to talk about monetary policy, what the outlook for economic growth around the world is uh, next year, uh, Brexit, and of course, the ever-growing topic of ESG. So uh, without further ado, let's go to Paul. Hi, Paul. Welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. Oh, it's very, very kind of you to invite me. Thank you very much. That's all. So, Paul, as as we've just been discussing just a few moments ago, um, uh, you know, we have had your um, your firm, T-I-E-R, is what we call it, but it used to be known as the Independent Economic Research Company Limited. That's right. It was too long, <laughs> especially as we set up a pension fund and it wouldn't, the, the Independent Economic Research Company's small self-administered pension scheme wouldn't fit on any checks or any documents. It had to go. All right. So it became TIA. Okay, <laughs> there we go. So, um, so Paul, you, you've been working with EFG uh, since uh, 1993 and certainly with me since uh, 1994 when, when I joined uh, EFG. That's um, right. Um, so, and um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Paul uh, works with myself, uh, Dan Murray, Stefan, Gianluigi and Joaquin on, and, and Gabby on our macro uh, research and the very important publication called uh, Insight and used to be called the uh, QMR. Uh, and Paul is, the way I describe you, Paul, is someone that all of us can, a bit of a sparring partner, you're very well known in the industry, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit about that in a moment, but a bit of a sparring partner for us in terms of, you know, bouncing ideas on uh, important uh, macro market trends. And uh, obviously it's been a, a very, very fruitful relationship for a very, very long time. 27 years. Absolutely. Amazing. So how many QMRs is that? 108. I've just counted. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah. um, so, so Paul, tell us a little, about your, a little bit about yourself and, um, and, uh, and your introduction to financial services. Introduction to financial services. Well, I, th I thought I'd better go right back to the start when I became interested in economics and money and all that sort of thing. Uh, and it was when I was 12 years old uh, in the UK when we had decimalization, 15th of February 1971. And we had decimal calculators converting from pounds, shillings and pence into pounds and new pence. And I was just absolutely fascinated by this concept of changing the money. And of course, at the same time, 
there were all sorts of crazy things going on in the UK and the world economy. The 1970s was just a fascinating, well, fascinating in retrospect at the time, somewhat sort of scary because of all the things that were going on in the economy. That was my introduction to economics and financial services, certainly. And uh, you then went on to Merrill Lynch, was it? Uh, uh, well, I started at the Bank of England. I went to sort of Merrill oh, yeah. Lynch after that. But yeah. uh, the first job was Mer- Merrill Lynch. Uh, was the Bank of England in 1980 after I'd done economics at Durham. And uh, it's in fact, it's interesting. What goes around comes around. Uh, Daniel Murray just yesterday did uh, an interview with Charles Goodhart on prospects for the world economy. And he was my first boss at the Bank of England oh, wow. in 1980. Wow. And uh, I just looked out uh, some, uh, well, they were internal Bank of England notes written by Charles and me and directed to 10 Downing Street. And it was a fantastic introduction to economics and uh, financial services industry that I got in the early 1980s. Uh I ve- it wasn't the first week. I, it's actually good going back through your files to answer your questions on these things. It was in March 1981. So I've been at the Bank of England six months. And Charles Goodhart came and he said, Paul, he said, I can't imitate his accent, but he's very posh. Paul, you've done a thesis on uh, controlling the amount of cash in circulation. Well, Margaret Thatcher's new advisor at 10 Downing Street, Alan Walters, thinks that's a very good way of running the economy. I think it's a load of rubbish. <laughs> so we'll write a note to Alan and then we'll go over and see him at 10 Downing Street and uh, put him right. And I've actually got the sequence of notes and memos. And uh, of course, that was a brilliant start for anyone setting off in economics and monetary economics. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then you, so then you went to Merrill Lynch then after that. That's right, exactly. So Merrill Lynch was uh, quite a different sort of kettle of fish. That was <laughs> it, 1986 when it was the time of Big Bang in the sort of financial services industry. And of course, everything changed. You know, it went from jobbers and brokers to sort of the new world of investment banks. And uh, I went to work for Merrill Lynch because I thought in that new environment, I suppose it sounded a bit unpatriotic, but I thought, company like Merrill Lynch is going to do probably better than a lot of the UK companies that are trying, after all, to behave like American companies. Mm. So that's where I ended up. So then you went um, and became independent. What was the what was the catalyst to that? And um, and uh, obviously, and, and then obviously working for yourself. You know, I think the catalyst was the conflicts of interest that you have within an investment bank, which were, I think, I probably shouldn't say too much about it, but I think they were evident to me at that time. And of course, later in the 1990s, and especially with some of the egregious behavior surrounding the promotion of dot-com stocks uh, and the internal investment bank research that was done around them. Having truly sort of objective, independent research and investment bank is very, very difficult. And of course, since then, we've had this massive growth of lots of independent sort of research providers to the point where I think most of of your seminars at 
the majority of people are from independent research providers and so on, little boutiques and so on. And uh, that, that's what I wanted to do then. I think we're a little bit ahead of other people, but equally we stayed pretty small. It's just me and a few helpers, whereas others are going to be quite big organisations. Mm. No, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, you know, one of the th huge benefits that we have as uh, EFG and EFG Asset Management is, is essentially plugging into a vast um, network of uh, independent um, research providers and uh, that has put us in very good stead over the over the last 25 years and long may it continue so um so let's talk about your journey uh, you've written a few books uh, maybe uh, and, and some of them at the time were quite controversial uh gives a bit of flavor of uh of uh of emu and various other things that subsequently happened <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got them all lined up on my bookshelf, of course, apart from the latest one, which I've run out of. But uh, the very first one was actually, in many ways, the most valuable. So when I left the Bank of England, I was approached to write a book called A Guide to UK Monetary Policy. I've worked in Monetary Policy Group for the Bank of England. That's a, that's a bit like the Monetary Policy Committee now. Um, and I wrote a guide to UK monetary policy, got Charles Goodhart's permission for it being published and so on. And it sold a few copies, but it was successful in two other ways. Um, it was plagiarised and I got a big amount of compensation. It sounded big at the time anyway, <laughs> from um, an, uh, an investment bank that shall remain anonymous. Uh, and then it also got onto the reading list at the London School of Economics, where by that time, Charles Goodhart was professor of economics, which was great until I was told one day, your book, Paul, it's a bit expensive. So we've worked out we can photocopy it for seven pounds <laughs> a time. Um, and we just circulated amongst ourselves. I said, well, I'm not very pleased about that. And of course, uh, now we have something called the ALCS, the Authors Licensing and Copyright Service, I signed up to this not very long ago, and they say, somehow we can detect how many times your book has been photocopied and used in an inappropriate manner, and here's a check. And uh, so that was actually quite good fun. So the very first one, and then I went on to do books on the European currency crisis, the launch of the euro, the UK and the euro, and the latest one, Travels with the Euro, which is more of a personal sort of take on experiences with traveling the world and talking about the euro and monetary economics so um as part of your your own activities um you've done various assignments some of them uh you know quite covert with uh intelligence agencies in uh in in various countries i won't, won't name them but uh, um what that that is that is true yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um Again, quite fascinating, you know, in terms of your um, your engagements, what sort of um, what are things do you, do you go out and you talk to people about? And probably more interesting for this conversation is what do people want to find out from from you know, from your services? Well, the one you mentioned um, uh, was actually uh, a long running assignment for a government department in Washington, um, looking at the sustainability of the debt positions of countries around the world. And I got that assignment just after Argentina 
uh, had gone bust after we'd had the dot-com boom and bust and so on. And the concern was, what can we look at to decide whether or not countries are going to have social and political problems and in particular economic problems because they often stem from having an unsustainable debt position. And I'm just thinking, my word, I should get, I should dust that course off and just deliver it again today because that's exactly the sort of issue we're talking about right now, isn't it? And that was really a fascinating experience because uh, I think we, at the time, a lot of cons- when we were doing this, we went on for quite a long sort of period of time, it's only ended quite so recently. The concern initially was with emerging economies and their debt sustainability and debt relief and issues like that. And then quite rapidly, and I think this actually worked out very well as a consultancy assignment, we identified that the problems were in the advanced economies and identified countries like Greece in particular at an early stage. And we couldn't quite believe it when we first did that because think, well, these problems should be in Somalia and sort of, you know, Peru and so on. But no, 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 we were finding out the problems were in Greece. And, and of course, the analysis is ever so simple. It's just a question of how fast you can grow your economy, and what it costs to borrow. And it's just run off that sort of very simple piece of, well, it's not quite exactly that simple. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been employed for years and years <laughs> for sort of multiple seminars around the world. But uh, it's essentially sort of based on that, you know, the gap between the interest rate you pay, and the growth rate of your economy. And that is exactly the situation that we're in everywhere now. Every single economy is addressing that issue. So... Um... Let's explore that a little bit more because obviously one of the the big themes that uh, certainly EFG has been involved in over the last you know, 10, 10 plus years now is around the the concept of wealthy nations, which um, which uh, you know you've written about as well uh, and, and worked with us on, um, and um, the, the concept in, t- in that respect is quite quite similar in terms of you know not being able to. Um, to sustain your, your borrowing, and when when uh, you know, foreigners essentially say enough's enough, we're not going to lend you any more money. Oh, absolutely! But then you can also see. I mean, I think one of the case studies we've done uh, with you is on uh, take a Gulf country, sort of uh, Oman or Qatar or whatever. I don't want to breach it, you know, make anything politically sensitive here, but um, a country like that can access Western capital markets with an eye and interest rate which is really low. I mean, it's a super credible borrower, good credit rating, and it can grow really fast in nominal terms, which is what matters, because it's got real growth and it's generally got quite a bit of inflation sort of going on as well. And so for economies like that, they don't really have any great sort of debt problems. And that's the beauty of that, uh, you know, wealthy nations type of idea or debt sus- using the sort of debt sustainability sort of concept. Uh, equally, you can detect, and I think this is the, the sort of consultancy work I've done over many years, can detect when it starts to go wrong. Because as soon as you've got this in Argentina, as soon as your interest rate, as soon as your borrowing cost starts creeping up and people lose confidence in that economy, uh, your growth rate starts to fall, 
currency weakens, inflation takes off, it very quickly goes from a sustainable situation to one which is completely unsustainable. And that's that's the sort of interaction between the behaviour of financial markets and behaviour of economists that I think has always fascinated me. And I remember get, when we looked at Greece during their crisis, I said, well, it looks to me as though this is doing an, something like an Argentina. You know, borrowing costs are shooting up. You know, and we're talking about the first period of the sort of Eurozone crisis. Growth is sort of dropping like a stone. People think the currency link might go. It's just a replay. And, of course, that's what it turned out to be. Mm. Uh, it took a long time to correct it, yeah. many, many years. Um, but, yeah, it's the same sort of the same dynamics. Mm. So let's relate that to today's circumstances. So countries that, you know, are going to be the kind of next ones, because clearly we've just had, you know, uh, uh, a COVID-related um, uh, recession. We're now recovering. Um, it feels, and you know, we've been discussing, you know, with yourself and, and with the team recently about um, the 2008, 2009, 2010 crisis. And actually, in that early part of the improvement, 09 and 10, it wasn't obvious that Greece would be the problem in 2011 and, and Ireland and, and all these other countries. Um, uh, and we're obviously in very interested today to actually look at which countries are going to default, not today or tomorrow, because it probably won't be noticeable when the recovery takes hold, you know, broader recovery takes hold. Which countries would you put into the camp of ones to watch for future defaults? I, mean, I think the trouble with using that sort of analysis that we just described is that I think you can do that for almost any country now and think they've got a debt sustainability problem. I think you'd have to be very brave to say it looks fine here. And when we talk about sustainability, it's either that debt is low enough that you're not worried about it, you know, 60% or so, or it's high but coming down quickly enough. I honestly don't think there are very many outside the ones that we've mentioned, sort of Gulf countries, for example, uh, with low debt levels. I don't think there are very many where you can say that looks fine. So I think, therefore, we have to approach this in a rather different way. Um, you know, one of the one of the films I really liked growing up was uh, Doctor Strangelove. Uh, how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Uh, and it was a very funny film. But I, I say now how we should, why we should stop worrying and love the debt. Because I think that's probably what we're going to have to do. Um, we're going to have to just tolerate that increase in sort of debt levels, which in so many countries will be way, way above what we thought was acceptable. Um, and just live with it for a while. It's not unlike a wartime situation. You know, we didn't think about debt sustainability in World War Two, well, not until right at the end, or, or World War One. We just have to put up with it. And I think putting up with it probably means several years, probably means three or four years, because I don't see growth coming back strong enough uh, in that period, nominal growth. Um, and then think about doing something in terms of fiscal correction, 
uh, after that. I was on a call with William White, the former head of the BIS, who was very famously sort of warned about the debt problems uh, before the global financial crisis. And, you know, he pointed to all the issues we've got, slow growth, yeah, uh, the environmental problem, uh, problems of sort of financing these sort of large debts. What, what do we sort out first? And his answer, which I think was a very good answer, was we've got to accept the debt, manage it, and in particular do a maturity transformation, so it's not all maturing too quickly. That's been a problem in a lot of countries extend that maturity out so it's something to think about in 50 years or 100 years or time um, and then just tackle the other problems once we've done that sort of debt transformation and that strikes me as an incredibly sensible way of doing it i don't think that will happen though because mm. i don't think many policymakers are that forward looking mm. but in an economy like the uk We've got a lot of extremely long-dated government debt uh, on which the government doesn't have to pay any interest. I mean, negative real interest rates on inflationary government debt, for example. Um, and, you know, that solution is not that, that, that sort of unusual. Um, Sweden in the 1990s had a debt sustainability problem. People thought, oh, it'll never stabilise its debt. One of the big things they did was moved to inflation-linked government debt at long maturity. That really very, very quickly helps your debt sustainability. So I think it's I think it's in two phases. One, learn to live with it, you know, learn to uh, stop worrying and, and love the debt, uh, change the debt structure, and then please, please not don't do this soon, you know, have some fiscal tightening in three or four years' time. Mm. Try and yeah, and debt back. You know, yeah, and then arguably um, debt tightening, um, um, you know, and fiscal tightening. Sorry, came a little bit too soon. I think during the last financial crisis. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but you know, you can have austerity, or you can try and sort of grow out of this sort of problem, or you can default. They're the three ways of getting out of it. So, um, and. I think after the last financial crisis, many people were convinced that we're in a world of secular stagnation, very low growth, very low inflation. And of course, they were right to think that because we've been stuck in this situation of very low, low inflation, low real growth, low nominal growth for a long period of time. So you, you can't grow out of the debt situation, therefore, in, in those circumstances. Mm. And you don't want to default. UK doesn't default. Good gracious, no, we're not going to do that. Um, and so it's got to be austerity if, you, if you're not happy in letting debt levels go up. It's really tricky. And I think that's, um, you know, uh, the myth always is, is that your, your debt actually goes down when you grow <laughs> very strongly. You know, Precisely. It's, it's, Precisely. You know, people always yeah. forget that, right? Um, Precisely. But that's how the UK got out of its post-World War II debt problem. Yeah. And of course, government debt came down from 200% to 20% of GDP. It was almost all through growth. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing, really. You know, we did successfully grow out of it. Um, I mean, although I'm a bit of a Dr. Strangelove advocate, you know, stop worrying. I think it can be taken too far. I mean, I've just got Stephanie Kelton's book, 
the deficit myth, which basically says, oh, don't worry at all. Uh, taxes? No, 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 no. You don't need to raise taxes. Just spend. And I'm thinking, well, she's not come across the experience of countries like the UK in the 1970s. That policy didn't last. Didn't last very long. <laughs> the spend, spend, spend policy didn't last very long then yeah. and ended, ended in complete and total disaster. Um, I'm not suggesting anything like that. It's more just, you know, a more relaxed approach to mm. rising debt levels for now. Mm. The um, sort of one of the things that, you and I have discussed and, and the team have discussed over the last couple of years, it's never quite happened, is the multiplier effect of infrastructure rather than if you like, corporate giveaways. Um, uh, you know, talk, talk us through that. Well, it should work. I mean, anyone who's studied economics in the, when I did in the 70s and 80s, yeah, it should work. I think most of the empirical evidence, and we've worked, you know, we've written about this in the sort of insight, is that it's actually pretty weak in most cases. It is probably larger from tax given aways rather than sort of infrastructure spending. And the sad reality is that a lot of government directed infrastructure spending is done very, very badly indeed. Um, so it's wasteful. I mean, I think we've, we've used the McKinsey study for you that projects over a billion dollars are, are generally 100% over budget and double the amount of time. You know, it's double for everything, twice as long and twice as expensive. Um, and I look around and I think, when will Crossrail actually be finished? Does it does it does it line up with that McKinsey model? Yes, it does. It's exactly in line. It takes twice as long. It costs twice as much. And then uh, just near us, we're building HS2. I think. Well, is this going to be another one that takes twice as long and costs twice as much? And I'd be pretty confident that yes, it probably will. Mm -hmm. um, so, and also that type of infrastructure. You know, railway. You know, railways, airports, and so on. Is it really the infrastructure we need? Uh, we've all changed our minds about the type of infrastructure we need to make our economies work properly in the future, and that infrastructure is much more to do with knowledge, capital, sort of networking, broadband, Wi-Fi, communications. Uh, it's not about you know, flying long distances from a crowded airport or traveling to Birmingham at high speed from London. I never really thought that there's any great demand for that anyway, but never mind. Um, no, absolutely, I guess. Well, I guess for a lot of people who are going to be working from home and and uh, London is uh, the place they work and they can live in Birmingham, then, uh, <laughs> then obviously it, uh, it works very well uh, coming two or three days a week. Um, <laughs> well, yes, that, that might be appealing, but I, I somehow think Zoom wins out over that type yeah, of commute. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, obviously, one of the things we're looking at at the moment is looking at the UK's broadband speeds and infrastructure relative to the rest of the world. We rank pretty poorly in the UK. Absolutely. But even that is, I mean, we had yesterday the IPO of Snowflake. Yeah. I mean, I think most people in the UK would be completely lost 
about sort of a company like that and what it is and what it stands for and what it's doing. I mean, even people I know who have invested in, well, Warren Buffett's invested in Snowflake. He's a pretty savvy investor, but other people in this, you know, investing in the tech investors I know have spoken about it. It's it's not an easy concept, you know, sort of cloud-based data storage and manipulation. But I tend to think that that's exactly the area that's going to be interesting uh, over the course of the next 5, 10, 15 years or so. So, yeah, we might talk about broadband and Wi-Fi, but uh, that's only part of the sort of bigger issue concerned with new technologies, cloud-based technologies, which I think all go hand in hand with the trend to remote working, not traveling such long distances and so on. So let's talk about some of the other sort of big trends in the industry um, at the moment. Uh, obviously, ESG is is one of them. Um, uh, you're pretty familiar uh, with EFG's approach to ESG. Um, um, but uh, what are some of the things that we, we might be missing or, or something that you think is very interesting that uh, really doesn't get enough attention? Uh, you know, I think when you asked me who... For- proposals for who would be on the future leaders panelist. I uh, mentioned Dieter Helm and his work on natural capital. Mm. And that is, you know, we've got to take account of the depletion of the world's resources as a result of what we're doing to generate economic growth. Um, And I got out, because when you talked about how do you get started financial, so so I got a couple of books that I read in the 70s. One which was a favourite was Eric Schumacher's book, Small is beautiful and some of the things he says in there about economics the environment what we would now call esg and so on are still so so apposite i've got one quote it's a shorter one i've got a few but the shortest one is the economic decay of the west remember he's writing this in 1973 is due to the heedless and shameful neglect of trees i'm thinking okay so in 1973 we knew it was bad to be cutting down all these trees what have we got this year it's the trillion trees project as sort of you know carbon absorbers and so on to help rectify everything that we've done to the sort of world's environment um these are really not new issues uh, you had jonathan porritt at your offsite at the start of the year in the 70s, he was my hero because I was a member of Friends of the Earth. And I thought, oh, God, we can't carry on like this. You know, the, the, the trees, the sort of environmental degradation, you know, using lots of oil and sort of polluting the environment. I, 50 years later, we've still not really addressed those problems at all. In fact, they got worse in the interim. Um, it's hugely encouraging when you see Ursula van der Leyen, we saw yesterday, talking about the Green Deal and the need to cut down on CO2 emissions. But there's a huge amount that needs to be done. The scale of that is truly gigantic. So in terms of the sort of the the, the general direction, it didn't always need a very, very strong government and collective government response, which is essentially what we have today. So the odds of it actually being successful relative to the previous 50 years, we've got to say, is much, much better now yeah. than, than it ever was. I think government policy is going to be 
a second or third ranking sort of consideration in this respect. I think this is led by uh, younger people, the millennial generation, if you want to call them that, the sort of way in which they consume and behave. It's being led by companies sort of, you know, cutting down their carbon emission, offsetting their carbon emissions. Companies like Tesla, for all of its sort of various faults, uh, with its sort of innovations and electric cars and so on. And governments are sort of, well, you know, they're making all the right noises and so on. But I think there's a great limit as to what you can do with regulation. I remain to be convinced that the European Emissions Trading Scheme is actually terribly useful and terribly effective, for example. Um, so I think it's I think it's much more individuals and companies that are going to set this thing right to the extent that they can do. Um, I'm not going to say I'm out there with an Extinction Rebellion banner, but I have a great deal of sympathy with all of the, those those messages. We've we've got to take this a lot more seriously. Yeah, and no, absolutely, certainly the um, the investment management industry seems to be taking it quite seriously obviously pressure from their end investors and then pressure then imparted on to those uh, companies a any thoughts around whether you know those companies are actually going to take things uh, seriously um, um you know one of the things that i remember in fact paul you probably don't even know this but um, uh -huh. <laughs> I, I actually um my mba thesis uh back in the uh uh, early to mid nineties was um, was uh, looking at um, um, the, the environment and in, impact investing and um, in, in, and ESG investing and so on and so forth. Uh, very 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 early on, <laughs> before most people. And my conclusion at the time was no one was taking it seriously. And so I just locked it away and didn't bother reading it for about 15 or 20 years until recently. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, you, know, what, what, you know, what are your thoughts around kind of investor attitudes? You know, clearly, you know, from next year, we'll be producing CO2 fact sheets across our, our products. But, uh, you know, uh, how serious or not do you think the industry is taking this? I think the industry is taking it very, very seriously. And um, just a year or so ago, I did a series of seminars for a, a fund manager, and we talked about all the ESG issues and sustainable development goals. And it was very much, you know, this is what you need to know about ESG. Uh, and they hadn't really got a great ESG product to sell anybody. Uh, now, that has now changed. There's an easy way into ESG because you have, MSCI, ESG and sustainability sort of indices, for example, which I, I think are fine if you want to just be passive and move in that direction. But I think ESG investing is, is hard. And I know the huge amount of work that you do on sort of assessing companies from an ESG perspective, you have to work hard to do that. Um, and there are many many considerations. I went to an ESG seminar, uh, UK CFA seminar on ESG at the end of last year. One of the speakers there said, well, look, if you take this to the extreme, there's always going to be a negative ESG aspect on almost anything you invest in. So you should probably just be in cash 
<laughs> well, that, that doesn't really help, does it? Uh, but then if you were really, really picky, you'd say, well, um, the US would be ruled out because on various ESG aspects, you know, for example, sort of, you know, nuclear arms and so on. Um, well, we shouldn't really invest in the US either. So I don't know what you invest, where you even invest your cash. Maybe Costa Rican cash, because they're all very environmentally friendly. But that, that's not an answer, is it? So there's always going to be some sort of okay. ESG issue, which is going to sit there. And certainly when I first looked at the ESG and people were saying, oh, well, it's scored and will allow sort of 10% exposure to tobacco if you're a retailer and things like that, it all becomes a bit, it's, it all becomes a bit woolly, doesn't it? So those things are really, really difficult to take into account. I think your thesis probably hit the nail on the head. It's more to do with impact investing. But that's not something which most ordinary investors can do very easily. No. No. I'm thinking about Jonathan Jonathan Porritt when he came to your offsite, gave, drew this great visual picture. I think he might have even had it on a PowerPoint slide as well of, of Australia being surrounded uh, by offshore wind turbines, uh, the electricity generated going uh, on, on to, into mainland Australia, it being used to power uh, uh, an electrolysis plant and the uh, hydrogen uh, that was created then being shipped to China as an alternative to coal. Oh, that's fantastic. And of course, that would help a lot of our environmental problems. But hey, we're a long way from doing that, aren't we? <laughs> I think his calculations were that Australia and its wind turbines and its hydrolysis could power the, the world seven times over, if I remember correctly what he said. Mm. So you need, it's more of a Gosh, we shouldn't use this term, should we? Because it's not, it's a bad term. Moonshot. Moonshot in the Google f a, a version of it. Moonshot in the Google version of it is something that's really sort of, you know, really changes the way we behave. Not moonshot in the sort of coronavirus testing way, which is <laughs> something quite different. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, flipping back to the, um, to, uh, the economic situation we're in, uh, you know, at the moment, um, what's your kind of best guess in terms of the it, it, you know, global economy, not necessarily this year, because we're obviously on a recovery trend. The Fed was pretty upbeat yesterday in terms of um, their economic projections, which were obviously a, um, a lot higher than the people had previously expected, or, or should I say less negative is probably the right terminology. Um, um, so what's your what's your best guess in terms of the economy for for next year. Let's assume that um, you know there's a vaccine that uh, people will happily take. Obviously, uh, um, you know from surveys I've seen, less than fifty percent of the people would actually take the COVID vaccine when it did come out. Um, but let's assume that uh, we've got enough people taking it, and um, and uh, you know rates stay low. Um, what's your best guess about the shape of economic growth uh, next year? Well, we've played with all the letters of the alphabet. The one that I saw recently, which I think is the best one, is the aeroplane wing. So an aer so it's like a sort of, it's very steep to start with, and then it levels off. And at the tip, it sometimes dips down, as you'll have probably seen from a, many an aeroplane seat you've sat in. Uh, so I think we've had the best improvement. And then I think it levels off, and hmm, it looks a bit 
difficult. There are still large parts of the economy that are just such a long way below capacity. Gyms, restaurants, bars, hotel, the entire hospitality sort of industry. Um, it's going to take a long, long time for them to get back. Now, I know, you know, we've spent money in different ways, haven't we? We've all spent money in different ways as a result of lockdown. So consumer spending is sort of compensatory to some extent. But I think this is, I think it's more of a long-term shock to the way in which people behave uh, and spend or employed, spend their lives. Um, you know, are we really going to go back to long distance exotic holidays in a great hurry am i going to be going to the gulf five times a year as i used to sort of before lockdown absolutely not so i think it does have a long-term effect now you know you're always supposed to challenge your views aren't you i mean i mean they're very much lower for longer and talking to daniel murray i think he's the same you know, fairly sluggish growth, low inflation, interest rates stay for low for a long time. But you're always supposed to challenge those views, aren't you? And Charles Goodhart yesterday on this call that I mentioned was saying that's going to be completely different. Demographics have changed. And we're going to have much higher inflation in the future as we run short of labour and the China effect wanes. I, I, I know what he's saying, but I don't really think that's something for now and probably not now for four or five years i think it looks much more like japanification in a lot of places especially in the eurozone to a lesser extent in the uk and the us does have the advantage of you know all the new tech it's the center of new tech and sort of innovation so us be ahead of the uk uk ahead of europe that's the sort of same old same old pattern really and um, um, Brexit, obviously, an added complication from a UK perspective. Oh, um, it's an added uh, complication. I, I, I'm sort of completely bored with it, really. <laughs> um, I think we all are. <laughs> the, the, I think we all are. Uh, there'll be some sort of deal done, I think. So it's not a, a you know, out without a deal, but it could be... Uh, you know, just the sketch of an outline enough to satisfy people. Mm. I know that's Daniel Murray's view as well. Uh, yeah, I I think so. But it is an, you know, it's frustrating because I think a lot, I, I voted to remain. My vote reason to vote remain was purely pragmatic because if we voted to leave, it would be such a mess. It'd take a long time to sort out. And so I feel, well, okay, it was the right view on a purely pragmatic point. And it's still going to take a lot longer, a lot lot longer to, to, sort, to sort all of this out. So I think yeah. the, the worry, certainly for me at least, is that, um, you know, having to deal with Brexit was one big thing, but having to deal with COVID and Brexit at the same time just means uh, uh, the risks for a much, much more protracted downturn, higher unemployment rates as, as you know, we kind of retool to the new way of working. It's true, but I mean, I've always been a big fan of Schumpeterian creative destruction. Yeah. And so if you want to be a bit more optimistic, we we do hear a lot about the destruction. We hear a lot about the loss of jobs, and that is, you know, very sad. 
But you can react to that like President Macron and say, I don't want anybody to lose their jobs, which is a ridiculous response. Uh, There's some sort of balance, the sort of UK response, but we don't hear very much about, excuse me, Amazon creating tens of thousands of jobs around the world because of the new way in which we do our shopping. Um, we, We don't hear about that, but I think there are some elements of creative destruction here which are really very, very encouraging, I think. Mm. We will behave in a different way. Mm. And a lot of that's very good. I mean, home delivery um, is net friendly. There are CO2 emissions. Every little helps, as they would say. So there are there are reasons for being optimistic about that. Mm. So um, I think that's, uh, no, I think that's right. I guess it, the question is how long how long does that sort of creative destruction process uh, take and uh, who are going to be the emerging winners as we, as we come out of it. And I'm sure there are, there's some, there's some great companies. Um, some of the, some of my colleagues you know, talked about Ocado as a, as one of those companies that uh, has become, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the leader in, um, uh, you know, I guess delivery automation um, and shopping automation um, and uh, you know, exporting throughout the whole world. Uh, I think that's quite a a good recent example of something the UK is very good at, and we're probably the most you know over supermarketed <laughs> group of people in the world. We, uh, we probably are, yeah. Uh, and and <laughs> uh, and you know, using that knowledge and that expertise globally is uh, is uh, to me is quite fascinating. Um, you know, I'm always you know um, reminded of uh, Michael Porter's uh, competitive advantage of nations. And I always go back to that framework whenever I think about, you know, countries and that are just very, very good at particular thing. Um, I would say that we're probably one of the best uh, operators of supermarkets uh, and users of supermarkets probably anywhere in the world. Uh, and and that comes through in things like you know Ocado, where it, it, they can it, it uh, they, yeah. they can export their uh... yeah, but it also comes through in things like um, uh, new technology. I mean, Arm, for example, great UK company. Unfortunately, from my personal portfolio perspective, yeah. sold to SoftBank, yeah. and then SoftBank sells it to sort of Nvidia. Yeah. It's a great pity that we don't seem to be able to hold on to those sort of great sort of technology companies in many ways. Yeah. But you know, the UK pharmaceutical industry is a great sort of innovator. That's yeah. uh, you know yeah. very high tech and uh, a leader in many respects. Uh, our education system is fantastic you know two of the three of the top 10 universities in the world are in the uk oxford cambridge and uh and imperial it depends which ranking you look at so you know we've got all of that great strengths for the sort of uk sounding a bit like boris johnson aren't you (laughs) it could be he might he might ask you for a job after you listen to the podcast um so um I guess we're kind of coming towards um, the uh, the end of this discussion. It's always been, has and always has been for the last twenty five years. It's been a very very interesting discussion, uh, you know, between us on on, on different trends. Um, one of the um, kind of things that I've asking all the all the speakers have come on is uh, what advice would you give your younger self about your career life and outlook? Oh. It's the same as Dan Clifton's answer. <laughs> just do just do something you're really interested in. Yeah. 
And economics for me has always been a great sort of fascination. And it, it actually isn't Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett said, you know, just do something you really like doing because then it'll never feel as though you've worked too hard in your life. <laughs> yeah. So just do something you enjoy doing. That's the main thing, isn't it? Yeah. We don't always have, we don't all have that, uh, that ability. But uh, fortunately, I have had that. So yeah. do something you enjoy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think uh, we certainly enjoy, or certainly I enjoy our uh, courtly and sometimes more frequent uh, catch-ups on, uh, on everything yeah. about markets and, and economy. Yeah. Well, well, Paul Willison, thank you very much for an uh, absolutely fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, lots of things for us to pick up on, no doubt. We'll find some of these in the uh, impending insight. We'll, we'll have you on again when we do the insight review in, in, a, in a couple of weeks time uh, okay. and in the meantime thank you very much thank you so uh, another fascinating discussion uh, today again if you have any questions please feel free to um, drop us an email beyond at fgam.com I'll repeat beyond at fgam.com thank you